Uh, find your seat and have some good conversations and, and get to the various children's ministries. And we're going to read the word now and um, I'm just going to get started. As mentioned before, the, the new sermon series is in Second uh, Samuel. So if you want to turn to me uh, with me to Second Samuel, we'll start at chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. 
After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. <coughs> All right, thanks. Thank you, Charles. Hey, um, g'day everyone. I'm Pete, one of the pastors here. It's good to see you all today. I especially welcome, I see a few visitors around, um, some old familiar faces also, some obviously friends and relatives. Um, you're, you're very welcome to be here. I'm glad you are. We're starting a new sermon series today. I've got sort of a lot to cover in terms of background and stuff today. So as we go through today, normally um, when I preach, I try and think of objections you might have or questions you might have and answer them as I go. There's going to be a lot of things today where I'm just sort of going to go over things that, that you might find objectionable, you might have questions about. So please, I invite you to ask me afterwards. We want to wrestle with God's word together. Um, feel free to, to speak to people around you as well. There'll be a couple that I'll raise as I go through and I'll just say, hey, this might be an objection you have and I'm not going to give the answer. Um, but, but we want to pick people that are digging into God's word. Okay, let me, let me pray just to, to set our hearts as we uh, sit under God's word. Father, we want to pray just that, that you would give us hearts uh, to hear you this morning. Uh, we, we pray that uh, your word would indeed stir our hearts, that we would uh, know your truth. Uh, help me to be faithful in the preaching of it. And pray that uh, you would do a mighty work in and through us as we uh, look at this passage. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a lot going on in terms of leadership uh, in our world right now. Uh, there, there's some things that you'd probably be, all of us would be aware of, like we have a new king um, and all Commonwealth countries do, but there's actually a lot of sort of movements and change in world leadership afoot right now uh, that are just a, a little disturbing, actually. So in Brazil right now, uh, there's elections happening today in Brazil, um, and um, the, the leader of Brazil already has said that doesn't matter what the results are, he's not going to abide by them. Now, this is one of the world's largest democracies. That's quite a disturbing thing. Um, in the Philippines recently, earlier this year, um, there was a, a new president elected, another one of the world's largest democracies. Now, this guy is the son of... You might remember... You, the name Marcos might ring a bell for you guys... Uh, was the, the was a brutal dictator. This is their, their son who's been sort of voted in. People are very worried about how he will rule um, that country. Uh, you'd be familiar with Russia. We all are, I'm sure. And, and Putin right now has annexed great parts of Ukraine and said that they're Russian and has basically said if, if Ukraine will sort of fight or step into that soil to, to try and take them back, uh, then he's possibly going to declare nuclear war. Uh, very disturbing. In China this month, there's 
uh, the, the Communist Party is meant to have sort of elections and discussions about who will be their next leader, because their current leader, Xi, has reached the end of his two terms in office. But those that you might know what's going on there, they've, they've changed how things work there, and now he can essentially be ruler for life. Uh, there's just lots of things going on in, in leadership in the world right now that's just, just a little worrying. You probably know um, of, of other situations. And this is quite a concern because leadership on that sort of scale and, um, has a great impact on people's lives. Right? The, the leaderships of our countries and governments and whatnot make a huge difference, not only to our livelihoods, but, but to our lives and our futures. And there's a real theme all through the Bible that leadership is so, so important. Now, as the Bible sort of um, looks at that, uh, the, the ideal leader, the, the leader that, that the Bible's looking for is, is someone that will um, rule and represent God's people under God's authority. Right? So someone who has a heart for God and therefore wants to love and care for the people that they are ruling now, what do I start with this discussion about leadership? Uh, because over the coming 10 weeks, we're diving into um, a series on the first half of the book of 2 Samuel. It's about a quarter of the way through the Bible, that book, if you want to find it in your Bible. And it describes the beginning of King David's reign. Many of you will be familiar with King David. And there's much that we can learn about what God says about leadership, about God's king, looking at the life of King David. But there's also much that we can reflect upon as God's people when we think about um, God's king and being a part of his kingdom. Now, for those who are here, and, and I hope there's a, there's a few that are, are not Christians, you might be thinking, okay, 10 weeks looking at a few chapters in this sort of part of the Bible that people don't look at a whole lot, um, but can I, can I put to you that, that King David, he lived around 3,000 years ago. You know, Wikipedia him or, or whatnot later. He was actually one of the, the most significant and influential people in, in all of world history. And when you actually look at it, the amount of information and historical writings that we have about him, and particularly written by him, it is actually incredible compared to, to others of sort of that historical period and a key difference in, in King David to, to a lot of other historical figures is that because he wrote so much and we have recorded what he has written we had a real insight into his life and his thoughts and his hearts that we they re really don't have in, in other histories of, of people. And I think you'll see as we, we look into the life of King David uh, we're going to see very much the, the heart of God's king uh, and what's called, called for ultimately in the leader of, of God's people, which we see perfectly and wonderful in Jesus, who the Bible tells us is the, the ultimate king um, who is, serves uh, his people. So how we're going to look at it today is we're going to firstly, I'm going to try and build this case um, both from sort of what we can rationally deduce and also from the Bible of the need for a king. Right? Why do we need a king? Then going to look at what we don't want in a king. Uh, you probably have a, a bit of a list of what you don't want already. But we're going to look at the book of 1 Samuel, so immediately before the section we're looking at, to see the, the first king of God's people, Saul, and really look at his life a little bit as 
all the things that we don't want in a king before finally we're going to get into the passage that was just read and we'll just go through it briefly to see some of the things that we do want in a king. Okay, and you might even find that surprising because there were some things that David didn't say in the passage which on surface value may not be the sort of things that you think um, should describe a king. Okay, so the need for a king, what we don't want in a king, and finally what we do want in a king. So the need for a king. Now, of course, as I said before, we've got a new king uh, and many people have been asking the question, why do we even need a king? Or even broadly, I think we've been asking the question, why do we even need rulers and, and whatnot? Because uh, those who rule us, who govern us, just tend to tax us and take our money. They make us follow the rules that, that they set. Um, and often in many cases in world history and in the world today, they oppress and make life hard. Do we even need rulers and leaders and kings or queens? Well, the alternative to a king or to a ruler or government for, for that matter is for everyone to do what is right in their own eyes. Right? If you don't have some sort of leadership level, people are doing what is right in our own eyes. Now, I, I just, the, the clearest example for me is traffic. Right? If everyone does what is right in their own eyes, we just get traffic chaos. You see, there's, there's places in the world you can go and that's, that's what it is. I, I personally really prefer some of the rules and regulations around traffic. Now, I say that and I'm willing to cop a $1,000 fine for touching my mobile phone in my car and, you know, for a couple of k's over the speed limit. Those things, I think, are worth it for the, the sort of the rules and the system that we have in place. You might want to argue that with me later. Um, another one probably that hits a, a bit harder is if everyone does what's right in their own eyes, think about the different sexual ethics in different elements of our society. If everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, then I quite frankly would be um, not letting my children out of my sight. Right? And there needs to be rules and, and regulations in place uh, to, be, to be able to sort of manage a, an ethic over us as a whole. Now, this same point of, of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, uh, not, not sort of working functionally, is made in the Bible. Now, this could be stretching the, the brains a bit, but earlier in the year we went through a, a series going through the whole story of the Bible. Okay? So I've got a slide that, that um, sort of... I, I just want to throw this aside. I'm, I'm not expecting us all to sort of necessarily remember or... or or whatever, if you weren't here, this is probably super confusing for you. But I'm hoping that this will sort of place where Second Samuel is in the Bible for us and this need for a king. Uh, so in the start of the, the story of the, the Bible, uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we're told that God created everything and that, that humanity, men and women, beautifully created in the image of God um, to, to rule um, and have dominion over everything but under God's good rule. Now, we've sinned. Uh, we rejected God as our king and our, our ruler and, and essentially said, no, we want to do things our own way. And that was the, the fall. And then the, the Bible takes us through how God has promised to save and redeem his people, the promises he made to Abraham. We saw when um, God's 
people, Abraham's descendant, were in slavery in Egypt. He rescued and redeemed them out of slavery. And we get to this point in the Bible where uh, there's God's people who know God's heart and they have sort of how they're supposed to live as God's people. They know that he loves them um, and, and they have them living in the land that he has given. Um, but the book of Judges describes how they sort of spiral into this chaotic descent. If you read the end of the book of Judges, things are horrific and despicable. Because, and it, the book of Judges literally ends with the verse saying, because everyone was doing what was right in their own eye. Uh, and it, it's building this case to this point in the Bible that God's people need someone, a, a king or representative, um, to, to rule them kindly with God's heart uh, in a way that would, would lead them to God and lead them to follow God. Okay, so um, both sort of in our society, I think we can see we need some sort of leadership. Um, and the Bible makes this point really clearly as well. We need, we need someone to um, help rule, uh, but also to, to represent us, which we'll get into to later, like represent, uh, like a, a political leader might represent a country um, on the world stage, that sort of thing. A leader to rule and represent. Okay, so if we need a king, let's look at the second point, which is what we don't want in a king. I googled this week uh, worst rulers in history. Uh, it's actually really interesting. I was, yeah, if you give that a go. Um, one that came up that I wasn't familiar with was this guy called Tamerlane. Now, Tamerlane, you can sort of see in the background of the picture behind him, he ruled in like the 1300s in sort of Middle East and India, and he was sort of like almost as big as sort of Genghis Khan, but just obviously not as well known. Now, what he would do is, and the reason why he ruled such a, such a large area is he would take his army and essentially if a city would, would try and fight against him, he would chop off every single person's heads and he would build this great tower of heads, right, that would turn into skulls. They were called skull towers. And, of course, when he went to the next city, the next city was like, actually, we won't fight against you. We'll just become a part of your dominion because of, of what he would do if, if they didn't. Um, it was a horrific guy to, to try and stand up against. Uh, apparently, there's over 100 of these towers built, over 90,000. Um, people who were killed in that way. He's a pretty bad guy. Um, more recently, um, the, the guy that's got the record for um, killing the most of his own people, you'd be familiar with, with Mao, in the Great Leap Forward, um, somewhere between 60 and 70 million people uh, of his own people were killed. Uh, on this list is some Bible figures. One of them is Herod the Great. He was the guy that was ruling in Judah when Jesus was born. So he's the, the one that killed all the kids, all the little boys under the age of two when, when Jesus was born. Uh, he, he also quite infamously in history killed a number of his own sons. Right? There's, there's some obvious candidates for who we don't want as our ruler, as our king. Um, but there's another one in, this, in, in the book of of First Samuel, the very first king of God's people, is is another contender for who we don't want as our king. Now, 
the passage that Charles just read out before, it started with the death of Saul. And it's really helpful if we're going to understand the events of, of 2 Samuel to, to understand what was going on for, in, the, in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, if you didn't know this, but the, the books of 1 and 2 Samuels, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, um, they actually were just too big to fit on scroll. So they're, they're supposed to sort of be one, one story, but they just, they're cut in the scrolls in those places. So they're, they're to be read as continuous stories. So Second Samuel here starts with Saul dying, which gets us to look back through First Samuel. Now in the book of First Samuel, which comes just after Judges in the biblical timeline, um, so there's this need for the king, and God anoints um, as the first king of Israel based on the people's demands this man called Saul. Now it seemed that Saul's great qualification for being the king is that he is the tallest man in Israel. So the Bible says that he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else. Okay? And he was esteemed by the people and they celebrated him as king. And we can read chapters 11 and 12. He had these great victories when he first stepped in, sort of rallied all the people together um, and it seemed to be going well. But by chapter 13, his heart begins to wander. He plays fast and loose with God's law, with God's will. And he gives himself to acts of disobedience. He, he grows rebellious. Um, we see a, a really key passage. This is a very important passage in 1 Samuel 13, um, where Samuel says to Saul, You've done foolishly, not, make, not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. So, so Saul is not a guy that is, is doing as God has commanded. He's not, his heart is not for the Lord and following God. In verse 14, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That's very, very important. A king of God's people, someone who's going to rule and represent God's people, needs to have a heart for God. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you to do. Now, a couple of chapters after this, in, in chapter 15, uh, Saul is commanded by God to, to go and, and wipe out the Amalekites. And this is going to be one of those places where you have an objection because he is told to literally wipe out a people group. Okay, now the, the Amalekites throughout the history you can read in the Bible had been trying to destroy. It seems like they are trying to destroy God's people. When God's people were wandering through the wilderness, the, the Amalekites attacked any stragglers along the way. And we can just see throughout history, Israel's history, uh, this people group that just um, sort of tries to attack and destroy the most vulnerable of God's people. And Saul here has been told to wipe them out. But he doesn't. And at this point, um, God re rejects Saul and David is anointed as the next king. Okay, So you've got the situation where Saul is, is the king, is the anointed king, he's still ruling, but, Samuel, but David has sort of already been sort of put in place as he's going to be next. Now, a couple of chapters later, the enemies of God come, the Philistines. Now, Philistines are famous because they have a number of giants. And even if you don't know your Bible well, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath. What happens is the Philistines, they, they come and they're champion a guy called Goliath, which, who's like nine feet tall, is the, obviously the tallest of the Philistines. He, he challenges a champion of Israel to, to fight him, you know, a sort of winner-takes-all battle. 
Now, who do you think should be the one to represent God's people against this mighty giant? Well, surely the tallest dude of Israel, right? Saul, who's the king, right? But every morning Goliath comes out and he challenges Israel and he sort of belittles them and their God and Saul does nothing. Now, David comes to visit the army because his brothers are in it. He's just a youth at this point. And he hears this and he goes, what on earth? This guy is challenging God. And, and so he volunteers to be the champion of God's people. Um, it, it's sort of comically tries on Saul's armour, but it's too big and heavy for him. It's sort of showing again that Saul should be the dude to fight here. But David goes with his slingshot and he trusts God. Um, and God gives this incredible victory. Right? So there's this, uh, this comparison being made by, by Saul who looks like he should be king. Um, but he's self-centred and, and, and not at all looking out for, for God's honour or God's people. And, and David, who, who is. Now, as we go through First Samuel, uh, Saul is continually jealous of David. He's obsessed with power and he tries multiple times to kill David. But then toward the end of that book in chapter 29, in a shocking moment, really almost unthinkable, the anointed king of Israel, Saul, he visits a witch for wisdom and help. Right? Think about that. The God's anointed, rather than going to God, he goes to a witch for wisdom and health. And another contrast, David in the chapter 2 that Charles just read out before, the first thing he does is, is go to God for help and advice. Saul is going to a witch. And then his final act in chapter 31, um, of selfishness and despair, um, is that he ends his own life. Now, Saul offers a warning for us. It's, it's a pretty clear and obvious warning. It's, it's not like one day he was God's anointed and sort of celebrated um, to, to when the next day uh, he's just in complete rebellion and, and taking his own life. Uh, no, it's a, it's a downward spiral that happens. It's a sad progress of deceit and slavery to sin. As a question for us to reflect on, where, where in your life, or am I in my life, allowing in our hearts patterns of sin to develop? No. Where we're rebelling against God and his ways, where we're, we're not loving others, uh, where are lies or lust, self-centeredness creeping into your life. Now, again, there's, there's a great contrast with, with David. We're going to see this in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David actually has a very similar spiral into terrible sin. Right? He commits adultery, he, he murders someone. So you can sort of look at Saul and, and David and be like, well, man, you've both done really horrific things. Now, the clear difference... Now, really the only distinguishable thing between the two is that while Saul is remorseful, um, he's actually very self-centred in his remorse. Okay, I invite you. It would be really helpful if you, you read through First Samuel over the, the next couple of weeks and, and even see 
sort of Saul's heart. Um, he's so self-centered in his remorse. Whereas, wonderfully, David, who's described as a man after God's own heart, uh, is so repentant. He's so ready to humble himself to admit his wrong and to cry out for mercy. And it's a good and it's a wonderful reminder for each and every one of us. The Bible doesn't say, hey, um, you've, you've got to be perfect to be God's people. No. Um, the, the Bible says, hey, you've got to actually receive God's forgiveness to be his people. And that forgiveness is received when we trust that actually it is Christ, his son, who, who has lived the life that we couldn't, whose heart was truly for God, um, who's laid it down for our sake. So um, quite clearly, what we don't want in a king or in a ruler is someone whose heart is far from God. Because that person is not right to lead God's people. So let's then look at, well, what do we want in a leader of God's people? What do we want in a king? I don't know whether I should do this or not, but I'm going to actually give an example from, from our queen, who's our recent queen, who just just died. Um, I didn't know this before. It was sort of written about in after her death. But she, as a young lady, apparently was so moved by a, a sermon uh, that she, she said after the sermon, Oh, how I wish that the Lord would return in my lifetime. Right? She was calling out for Jesus to return in her lifetime. And when she was asked why, she replied with, with the words up on the screen, I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. Now, I have different views on, on the, the Queen. I understand that and, and her different actions and stuff. But tell you what, it just resonated so much with my heart that someone who, who could sort of cling on to so much power and, and whatnot was, was so willing to, to, to want and just joyfully exuberant about wanting to, to lay down her crown at, at the feet of Jesus. And it's interesting, I've been reading a little bit what's been written by the Queen and there's some, some of the press is normally quite sort of progressive and against the monarchy and that sort of stuff. And um, I totally understand that. Um, but it's interesting, as, as I read an article of, of someone sort of with that point of view, very strongly that point of view, was reflecting on how they were feeling grief at the Queen's passing. I was saying there's just something in the Queen, the stability and the values that she held to, they just feel as like being lost to the world. I think that was quite insightful because over the last generation or two, a lot of those, those Christian values, um, which I think the Queen was holding on to, have in a sense been more broadly lost from the world. And, and there's been this outpouring of grief. We, we haven't, a lot of people haven't really known why. I think it's because we, we realise there's something that's deep that has been lost. And I think the clue is in that, that slide I just showed before, where it's a, it's a ruler or a leader 
that's actually willing to lay down their crown at the feet of Jesus. So, I don't know how long we've been going for, like 20 minutes at least probably, and finally about to hit the text that was just read out. I'll try and do it really quickly. Um, the, in, in verse 1, uh, we're, we're told um, David remained two days in Zilgag, and on the third day, um, a man came from Saul's camp. Now, whenever in the Bible, if you're reading, something's happening on the third day, there's a chance there's something significant. Okay? Um, day Jesus rose from the dead. Um, in this case, I think what's, what's significant that's happening is the old king has died, Saul, and the news has now reached to God's people. Um, and, and it's like on the third day, it's really, this is, although not official yet, is when Jesus, uh, sorry, when David is is starting to reign and to rule God's people. But he has two very surprising reactions in this, this passage that was read. Now, first of the surprising reactions that David has is that he kills this Amalekite that's bringing the news of Saul's death. I'm, I'm sure you found that a bit disturbing. Isn't God's king meant to be merciful rather than just sort of almost seems like arbitrary justice there? Uh, and the second thing is that he laments Saul. And that also is surprising because Saul had been trying to kill him so much. Why would David be lamenting Saul? So I want to dig into these two things. And I think the reason is, I'll give them up front, is, is because David is concerned first and foremost about God's honour. And, and secondly, um, he wants what's best for God's people. And that's actually behind what, these two reactions here, God's honour and what's best for God's people. So it's interesting that while Saul has been battling the end of 1 Samuel against the, the Philistines, um, the Amalekites, while the rest of Israel sort of undefended the army's gone, has decided to sort of attack. Um, and so it's, it's David who is the one to, to sort of defend the vulnerable and whatnot. And he has his victory over the Amalekites. So that's um, where the Amalekites and David's victory over them is mentioned at the start of this chapter. Um, but then interestingly, it's actually an Amalekite that brings this news of Saul's death. So it's sort of Amalekites are sprinkled all through this. And I'll put up some verses on the screen. Um, but, but basically in, in verse 5 to 10 um, describes sort of what's happened. Um, David wants to know, well, how, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? And, and the Amalekite says, well, actually... I know because I killed them myself. Okay? Now, the news of Saul's death is it's, it's bad news for God's people in, in some ways because um, like their king and, and their leader has been killed and their army has been defeated. But the Amalekite here is bringing this news, thinking that it's, it's actually good news for David and he's trying to make it good news for himself. So the Amalekite here um, is actually lying. Okay? If, you, if you read chapter 31 of First uh, Samuel, Saul's not killed by this Amalekite. He clearly takes his own life. That's how the narrator explains the story. But the Amalekite here is trying to seek an advantage for himself, right? He lies about it and says, actually, it was at my hand 
that Saul died. Now he knows that David's got to sort of pretend to be sad about Saul dying, or that's what he's expecting. But he's expecting to be sort of rewarded that he's the one to, to kill David's competition for the throne because he's thinking, well, now David can, can take the throne and he'll reward me for the one of sort of delivering that for him. So he says, and he lies and he says, he's killed Saul. It's worth us reflecting here uh, for ourselves. Do you, do you do that sort of thing to try and gain an advantage for yourself? Uh, where you, you know, someone doesn't have all the information and you, you tell it or share something in such a way that's going to make you look good. Uh, you try and manipulate the situation. Uh, maybe you do that in a work situation, um, at home, amongst friends, maybe just to even exaggerate a story where you know people aren't going to really be able to fact check it. I do, I do that often. That's a... That's something I've been growing increasingly conscious of. It's, it's just subtly lying to try and make myself look better. Is that true of you as well? well it's, a, it's a big wake-up call um, because the Amalekite here thinks that David's going to honour him. But David, David firstly laments Saul and Jonathan's death. Uh, but then in, in verse 13, he checks where this man comes from. Uh, now, he's already said that he's an Amalekite, but he says here, um, I'm the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Now, the reason that David is asking this question, if this guy's just an Amalekite, then he doesn't know the big deal it is about killing God's anointed. Right? But if he's a sojourner, a sojourner means that, that he's the son of a sojourner, means his family has been living amongst the people of Israel. Right? So he should and, and would know the significance of killing God's anointed. Right? So it's on that basis that David then puts him to death. But it's, it still strikes us. Okay, so, so he, in a sense he deserves death, but it strikes us as being counter what we would expect first action of David really stepping into this leadership here and he doesn't show mercy uh, he shows justice why is that what what's the big deal about God's anointed well ultimately it is about God's honor in in chapters 24 and 26 of, of 1 Samuel, there's two occasions where uh, Saul is pursuing David. We can read some of his psalms of just how hard a time that was for his life. So he's been persecuted and pursued by Saul. He's been hunted. Right? And on those, those two chapters, there's, there's two occasions where David literally has Saul in his own grasp and he could easily reach out and kill him. And he doesn't. And both times he says the reason that he doesn't is because Saul is God's anointed. To kill Saul, even though he probably deserves it, um, and even though it would just be profitable for David himself, is not right. It's not honouring to God, so he doesn't do it. 
Now, what's the big deal about the anointed? Well, we get a clue in the actual word anointed itself. That word in, in Hebrew is Messiah. Uh, you probably know then what it is in, in Greek or the New Testament. It's Christ. Okay, that is a big deal in the, the story of the Bible, isn't it? Um, God's anointed ultimately is pointing us to God sending a representative, a king, um, to represent and rule his people. Uh, one that should be honoured. It's it. It's interesting then to think about the fact that we did the very opposite of honour God's anointed. When, when Jesus came, the true ultimate king, the Messiah, the Christ, we killed him. That's why David is reacting so strongly here to the killing of, of God's anointed. But the other reason is that he wants the best for God's people. David here shows real grief and, and also honouring of, of Saul in this passage. We, we see in, in verse uh, 11 and 12 that they grieve deeply. But notice there it says it's for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel. Right, he's, he's grieving for Saul and Jonathan, but he's also deeply grieving for God's people. Why is that? I, I think we get some clues in, in his lament. Uh, in verse 19 and, and 20, uh, we see that he says that God's glory, um, oh, Israel's glory is slain. And then he says, interestingly, in verse 20, tell it not to Gath or to Asher, the other places. Um, what he's saying is that he's grieving the fact that God's enemies are celebrating the downfall of God's anointed king. Right? He's concerned about God's honour again. Uh, and he's also concerned that God has actually been, uh, sorry, Saul has actually been used for the good of, of God's people. So in verses 22 and, and 24, uh, we see that he, he gave great victory via Saul, um, but also that, that Israel, it says the daughters of Israel in, enjoyed luxury um, and ornaments and so forth because of uh, what Saul had provided in terms of his leadership. So, this morning I've been, been trying to, to make the case that we do need a king, we need a leader. Um, but the worst thing is for a, a king or a representative that, that its heart is far from God. And what God's people do need is a man after God's own heart. Someone who honours God and loves his people. That king, uh, according to the Bible, is Jesus, ultimately. Uh, David points us to him, but it is ultimately Jesus that, that honours God, follows his word, and lays down his life for the people. Now, we're going to share a, a pretty simple meal now. Um, we, we call it communion or the Lord's Supper. 
Um, but I think this meal actually wonderfully shows us both God's honour through Jesus, um, but also his love for his people. And the meal that we're going to share, it's, it's little pieces of, of bread and, and little thimbles of, of grape juice. Um, but that, this meal is pointing us towards a kingdom feast. Uh, it's pointing us to the kingdom feast where, where Jesus is looking forward to sharing with all those that are his. Um, it's a, a feast of, of great honour, but it's actually the, the people that are willing to humble themselves that will receive it. Um, the, the artwork for, for this series has, a, has two crowns. Um, the, the golden crown is, is representing God's honour and his gloriousness. Uh, but the, you might have seen the, the crown of thorns around it. It's showing that we have a king who's laid down his life for his people. And this meal that we're about to share reminds us that, that Jesus has laid down his life for us. And as we partake in it, the, the bread and the juice, his body broken, his blood shed, we're reminded of a king that loves his people. So in just a minute, I'm going to invite the, the officers of the church to come and help distribute the elements with me. Um, I'd invite those who can and are willing, who are trusting in, in Jesus, to, to come to the front to, to receive them. Grab hold, keep hold of them and then take them back to your seat and I'll lead us in a time of eating and drinking together. Uh, if you have some mobility challenges, maybe you're nursing a little one, um, someone will come, come around, so just sort of signal if, if you want someone to, to, um, to hand the, the bread and the juice to you. Um, kids, again, I remind you, we, we are keen for you to, to join us in, in this meal. And we, we say for, for kids of our church that the time to do that is after you've publicly professed your faith, so either through baptism or through communicant membership. Um, but as, as we take this meal, uh, can I ask you to reflect on um, what the, the Bible tells us about our king, the one who would lay down his life for his people? Is that the leader? that we want. All right. Father, we, we do thank you uh, for this simple meal and how uh, it is a reminder uh, that you are worthy of all honour and glory and praise. We're thankful that it points to, to Jesus as the, uh, the victorious lamb who was slain, um, who is worthy uh, to open the scroll and to receive the kingdom, your kingdom. Not only that, it points us to the fact that uh, he, by laying down his life, has redeemed uh, a people people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Uh, and it's a great reminder, Father, that it is not what we bring or, or what we do uh, that causes us to be a part of your kingdom, but it is in receiving what Christ has done for us. 
Father, I pray that even as we've been through uh, quickly through this chapter of, of First Samuel, that uh, it's put on our hearts different ways that we are sinning and, and falling short, uh, ways that we are turning away from you. I pray, Lord, that you would be gracious to us and, and open our eyes to our sin and shortcoming so that we might repent. We might confess and we might turn uh, and receive the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. And Father, it is in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to sing one last song, All Creatures of Our God and King. <laughs>